Here we go. Seven factors of awakening. So last night I'd intended to talk about the relationship between the uh, freeing ourselves from the hindrances and the development of the seven factors of awakening. But as it turned out, the hindrances and perhaps more generally afflictive emotions turned out to be a bigger topic than I expected. So we didn't quite get to the other side of the of the scale. We didn't quite get to start exploring the wholesome qualities of mind known as the seven factors of awakening. So tonight I want to give at least an overview of these because strangely enough, even though it's where all of this practice is heading, they're actually not talked about that often except on longer retreats sometimes. And that's really too bad because if we only seem to hear about the hindrances and the defilements and the root poisons and the afflictive emotions and on and on and on, it can give the wrong impression that our practice is about just slogging through all these challenges before we get any relief. And it can also create the impression that these seven factors of awakening are somehow mysterious or mystical or esoteric states that can only be experienced by very advanced practitioners. But as I was trying to emphasize last night, if we start to tune our mind in and to recognize these states, we probably will uh, realize that we've actually been, um, they're present more often than we might realize. And just the act of turning our attention to them and knowing them helps them to grow. So when you hear this list of the seven factors of awakening, you'll see that you all already have been cultivating them, at least to some extent. So here's the list of what they are. Mindfulness. That's an easy, easy one. Investigation. Energy. Joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So I'll go through each of these factors in a bit more detail soon, but I first I just want to mention the huge importance of their, of their role in insight practice. So Bhikkhu Analio, who I've been quoting a little bit, the German scholar monk who came up with the abbreviations KCKC, as I mentioned earlier, he wrote his PhD on the Satipatthana Sutta. And according to him, the seven factors of awakening are really the culmination of all of these different techniques of mindfulness that are laid out in the Satipatthana Sutta. So all forms of mindfulness practice are really cultivated in the service of developing these seven factors. Because when all seven factors are perfectly in balance together, that's when the deepest insights can arise. That's when we have the optimum conditions for awakening, the kind of insights that deeply transform our hearts and minds. So within the framework of the four foundations of mindfulness, these factors come under the fourth foundation. Like the hindrances, they come under mindfulness of dhammas. And as I was emphasizing last night, when we get to this fourth foundation, 
It's very clear that we're supposed to actually engage with our experience and to do something about it. So in relation to the five hindrances, we're instructed to discard them, to know how they're to know how they arise, to know how to discard them, and to know how to prevent them from coming up again in the future. When it comes to the seven awakening factors we, of mindfulness and investigation and energy and joy and tranquility and concentration and equanimity, these are qualities that we want to encourage and to strengthen. And to strengthen. So I'll read you what it says in the Sutta in relation to these. Uh, The template is the same for all seven factors. So I'll read it in relation to just the first one, which is mindfulness. Here, if the mindfulness awakening factor is present in one, one knows there is the mindfulness awakening factor present in me. If the mindfulness awakening factor is absent one knows there is no mindfulness awakening factor in me. One knows how the unarisen mindfulness awakening factor can arise and how the arisen mindfulness awakening factor can be perfected by development. So the first stage is to know is the awakening factor present or not. And there's a relationship between the awakening factors and the hindrances because By definition, when the hindrances are present in the mind, the awakening factors are absent. And the opposite is also true. So, for example, when there's aversion or doubt in the mind, there's no room for joy and investigation. But when joy and investigation are present in the mind, aversion and doubt are not. So the skill of the practice then is really learning to recognize when the hindrances are present letting them go or discarding them so that the awakening factors can emerge and be brought to fulfillment instead. So the first step in the process is to recognize them, to become familiar with how they show up in the mind. So you can do this just by running through the list from time to time. So even right now we could do it. Is mindfulness present right now or not? And just asking the question, right there, you're mindful. So that's an easy um, tick. How about investigation? Is there interest? Is there curiosity? Is there engagement with my experience? Or am I a bit zoned out? And again, in the moment of asking the question, just asking the question is investigation. So again, another easy tick. Then energy. You might notice, how's the energy in the mind? Is there too much, not enough? Some form of dullness or perhaps some agitation or just quite a balanced, steady energy. Then joy, sometimes also translated as rapture. But joy, is there um, interest, delight even, Or am I sitting here with gritted teeth just waiting for the talk to be over so I can go to bed? So you might notice, how can I incline the mind towards joy if it's missing? Tranquility, calmness, serenity. How much of that is present right now? 
Tranquility is important because it leads into concentration or stability, unity of mind, non-distractability. So right now, how is this factor of concentration? Is there some sense of non-distractability or am I kind of scattered and all over the place? And then lastly, equanimity. Equanimity is a slightly old-fashioned word for evenness of heart-mind, of balanced acceptance. And in its uh, deepest expression, it's when the heart-mind is completely free of any wanting or any not wanting. It's just resting steady. So that's a very brief overview of these seven factors. And when we run through the checklist like that, we might find at any one time that perhaps one or two are pretty clearly present and one or two might be a little bit weaker. But even this is useful information because I found in my own practice when I do this, often a similar one is missing each time. And usually that's the very one, the one that I forget the most, is the one that needs the most uh, attention or strengthening. So mindfulness of these of the seven factors, mindfulness is the one that kickstarts the whole chain reaction. And it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation because we need mindfulness to be present so that we know if the other awakening factors are there or not. So mindfulness is the crucial first step. And then of the next six factors, three of them actually raise the energy in the mind and three of them tend to calm the energy in the mind. So the next three in the sequence of investigation and energy and joy tend to bring more energy into the mind and to raise the energy levels, whereas tranquility and concentration and equanimity calm it down. So as our minds get more refined, our mindfulness gets more clear, we can start to kind of play these seven factors, almost like music. We can know, oh, there's a little bit too much agitation now. My joy has shaded over into a little bit of euphoria. Okay, maybe it's time to emphasize tranquility, bring the mind back into calmness. Other times we might just become so incredibly calm that we start to sink into that koala mind that I mentioned the other day. So when we notice that, okay, investigation, what's going on here? An investigation is very powerful for just subtly boosting the energy when it's needed. So mindfulness you're all familiar with, investigation I've been introducing in the form of those questions, what's happening in my body, my heart, mind, how am I relating to this, is a very simple way of raising the investigation factor. And the investigation here in the context of meditation retreat is not intellectual analysis or thinking about or cogitating. It's more of an embodied investigation, a more intuitive kind of exploration. And on the deeper levels, it leads to a more direct experience of the three universal characteristics that I mentioned on the first night. We start to see, investigate, and see very clearly 
everything's changing. Nothing is permanently satisfactory and there is no permanent stable self that all this experience is happening to. So when we start to see these characteristics more clearly, that in itself can naturally raise our interest and bring energy into the practice. So this is the third factor of awakening. And often we think of energy as a sudden burst of mental or physical action. But here what's required is a very sustained and steady energy, a continuous application of energy. And in the discourses it's described as unshakable energy. And as this factor naturally develops, almost um, paradoxically, it becomes quite effortless. And at times we can experience this almost as if we're like surfing a wave. You know, in the beginning we might have to paddle to get the wave, but when we're on the wave, there's a natural momentum that carries us. And all we have to do is to keep paying attention. And sometimes because of this feeling of effortlessness and lightness, the next factor emerges quite naturally, the factor of joy or rapture. The joy that's referred to here, though, is not the kind of joy that comes from sense pleasures. It's a much more refined and subtle mental type of enjoyment. And because of this, it's much more sustainable than ordinary sense-based pleasure. For example, if you think about something uh, sense-based pleasure such as eat, maybe eating a bowl of ice cream. How many bowls of ice cream can you actually enjoy before you start to feel a little bit sick? So it, that's a relatively coarse form of enjoyment, but this factor, of, awakening factor of joy can be s- sustained for many hours for people who are really adept meditators, perhaps even days, again without much effort. So when this joy stabilizes and steadies, it gives way again quite naturally to tranquility, which is the next awakening factor. And that's a very deep, stable calmness of body and mind. And it's a direct antidote to the hindrance of restlessness and worry. And again, it's quite a refined and subtle state. So as I was saying earlier, This uh, factor of tranquility can be one of those states that for some people takes a bit of getting used to because most of us are so used to doing, doing, doing so that when we come into this state of greater calm, we can get a bit agitated. Oh, now what am I supposed to do? Nothing's happening. So again, that's why I was emphasizing this quality of meditation is getting used to it. When the mind is in these more subtle states, we need, need to refine our attention so we can get used to them. So tranquility is a quality of profound stillness and calm, and it leads naturally into concentration, the next factor. And as I may have mentioned earlier, the English translation of samadhi as concentration, I think Graham also mentioned this, it's not a great translation because concentration has this connotation of sort of furrowed brow, focusing, narrowing, fixating on a particular object and trying to get some kind of concentrated state. 
But this actually is not what's being pointed to here. And if we try to do that, we usually make ourselves very tight. So a more accurate translation of samadhi might be indistractability or one-pointedness or absorbed. It's the mind that's just naturally absorbed into the object, doesn't want to go anywhere. It stays quite steady. And when we do experience this, it's actually a pretty deep relief for most of us because sometimes it's not until we come on a retreat like this that we realize how most of the time we're so chronically overstimulated. You know, just the pressure of our contemporary life, we're always being bombarded by different sense contacts. And these actually have an impact on the nervous system. But when we can come into these states of deeper concentration or absorption, we can re it's almost like a reset, like you do for the computer. You press the reset button. It gives a deep sense of refreshment to the nervous system. And then we, when we come out of it, we can see more clearly. And then from this state of concentration, the final factor of awakening of equanimity can develop. And as I said earlier, this is a mind that's perfectly at ease, perfectly in balance, no trace of clinging, no trace of resisting, just completely with the experience as it is. And this can be experienced on more and more refined levels. So even the subtle vibrations of energy and joy are not present anymore in this state. It's not a state of disconnection, though. Sometimes when people hear equanimity, they get um, misinterpreted as being some kind of blank, dead, non-responsive state. But true equanimity has a subtle, alive energy to it. It's a state of non-reactivity that really allows the deepest insights to arise. So we don't have time, unfortunately, to go into these, all of them in more detail tonight. But I thought it might be helpful to just uh, explore one of them a little bit more fully. And that's the factor of energy, because of all of them, I think that one is the one that's so easy to misunderstand, to misuse and to get out of balance. So before we go there, though, I just want to um, talk about the relationship between mindfulness and investigation and energy, these first three. So with each of these factors, what helps them to arise is the presence of the preceding one. So together they set off this kind of chain reaction. And as I've been saying, mindfulness is the one that gets the whole thing going. So in the suttas, the quality of mindfulness that makes it an actual awakening factor and not just ordinary everyday awareness is that it's unremitting, unremitting mindfulness. That's why we've been emphasizing continuity of mindfulness because with that continuity of mindfulness, we can start to tune into more and more refined aspects of our experience. And then from this, interest or investigation arises quite naturally. 
So at times we might even reconnect with a, a sense of wonder, almost like being a, a small child again. Perhaps you've tasted moments of that on retreat where suddenly everything appears fresh and new and fascinating. So we wake up and the, that first mouthful of tea in the morning, just the flavor of it is quite intense. Or we smell the smell of the mint, bu- mint bushes after the rain. Or we catch a drop of dew just shimmering on a leaf. There are all these different ways that we can suddenly feel ourselves come alive as the investigation uh, strengthens as a result of mindfulness. And in those examples I gave, you might notice there's a sense of energy. You know, when there's interest, there's a brightness and aliveness, and the energy naturally becomes stronger. So in the suttas, what it says about these first three is that abiding thus mindful of body, feelings, minds, and dhammas, in other words, the four foundations of mindfulness, one investigates and examines with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it. In one who investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it, tireless energy is aroused. On whatever occasion tireless energy is aroused, on that occasion the energy enlightenment factor is aroused, and one develops it, and by development it comes to fulfillment. So tireless energy is what makes this uh, ordinary energy into an awakening factor. Now, it's possible that for some of us, when we hear this phrase, tireless energy, we might actually feel a little bit tired, perhaps even exhausted, perhaps a sense of shrinking back, pulling away. So it can be helpful to remember that balance is extremely important in relation to this awakening factor. So Joseph Goldstein describes how some, he says, we can get a sense of the many nuances of this awakening factor of energy. The Pali word is virya, from the different ways that this Pali term has been translated as energy, effort, strength, courage, vigor, perseverance, and persistence. And my understanding is that the uh, in the Pali word virya, those first three letters, V-I-R, also um, are linked etymologically to the English words virile and warrior. So there's a connotation of masculine energy, heroic or warrior energy. And if you are familiar with yoga pose, viryabhadasana, that's the same uh, energy, virya, same word there. And again, just to notice when you hear these different flavors of energy, if there's any kind of response in the body and the heart and the mind. So for some people, hearing about heroic energy can bring up a sense of inadequacy. Oh no, here we go, it's getting serious now and I'm not going to be able to keep up. 
But for others, that might be finally we're getting to the real stuff, none of this fluffy relaxation and kindness. Let's get down to it. And for others, there might not be much response at all. So if that's true for you, you can just abide in equanimity for the rest of the talk. But for most of us, we tend to have a leaning one way or the other in relation to energy. And it's important to know for ourselves what our own bias tends to be. So even in the Buddha's time, there was this understanding that finding the appropriate balance of energy could be challenging. It's said that one of the monks who, in a, before he was ordained, had been a musician, a lute player, and he was really struggling, making far too much effort. And he went to the Buddha because he wasn't making any progress, and he asked for some advice. And the Buddha said to him, well, when you were a lute player... If you wanted a good sound, did you tune the strings very tight? And of course the answer is no. And then the Buddha said again, and if you wanted a good sound, did you tune the strings too loose? Pretty obvious, no. We need to tune the strings just right in order to get uh, the right sound. And I like that analogy because we do that tuning through listening. We need to listen to our own bodies and hearts and minds to know at any point in time, am I too tight or too loose? And just like an instrument, we don't tune it once, stick it in a corner, and then that's it. We have to keep retuning it, retuning it, and retuning it. So the amount of energy or virya needed right now in this context of this retreat might be completely different than when you're sitting at home or if you're injured or sick, or in 10 years' time, the amount of energy that you need, it's going to be changing all the time. So in all of this balance, the Buddha talked a lot about the middle way. After his initial uh, awakening experience, full when he had attained Nibbana or Nirvana, one of the first discourses he gave was on the need for the middle way. And he framed it in terms of balance between um, what were common in India at that time, self-mortification practices. So at one extreme, there was a lot of austerity, sleeping on beds of nails, holding one's breath, eating tiny amounts of food, really sort of tormenting the body. It was a belief that this was the way to um, transcend somehow, is to beat the body into submission. And the Buddha spoke out about that and said, that's not helpful. On the other side also was extreme hedonism and total indulgence in sense pleasure. There were some groups who believed that was the way to freedom. And the Buddha, because he apparently was born into a relatively wealthy family in his early life, he'd been able to experience quite a large amount of sense pleasure, but he saw that that wasn't helpful either. So this middle way is the middle way between not indulging in sense pleasures on one hand, but not torturing ourselves on the other. And we can hear about uh, this physical self-torture and think, well, that's not that relevant. But as Joseph Goldstein has pointed out, what is very common today is a kind of psychological self-torture. So a lot of us tend to be extremely hard on ourselves. 
We don't beat up our bodies, but we beat up our own minds often. And we have this uh, common tendency in our culture towards perfectionism and idealism. So we're constantly judging and criticizing and undermining ourselves. And all of, sometimes we even approach our meditation practice as some giant self-improvement project, not seeing that that's actually rooted in self-aversion. And it does seem to be that we're often very dualistic creatures and we have this very black and white binary approach, all or nothing. And we can see that sometimes in terms of New Year's resolutions. You know, we set this ridiculous idealistic goal. We strive really hard for, I don't know, two days and then forget it. Didn't work. Try again next year. So I've actually started to, um, we can see this. You may have seen this in your own retreat so far, this kind of swinging between striving and then apathy, striving and then apathy. And we don't find that middle way because we're always swinging from one extreme to the other. And I joke, I call this superhero to slug syndrome. So we make this totally ridiculous amount of effort and then burn ourselves out and then boom collapse into exhaustion, become a slug, and then there's a period of recovery, and then woof, we go back into trying to be a superhero again. And often this syndrome is driven by the fear that unless I make 110% effort, I'm going to stall completely. But ironically, that's actually what often happens because of this imbalance of energy. So that's why I invited you the other day to notice when you hear the bell ring at the end of a sitting, is there some sense of, oh, finally. That may be a sign of having made too much effort. On the other hand, if you hear the bell at the end of the sitting and realize that you've been completely zoned out for the last 42 and a half minutes, that might be a sign of not enough effort. So we need to get to know our own default patterns and one of the challenges of giving a talk like this is i know from my own experience that we tend to take the parts of the talk that reinforce our own biases so it's likely that when i talk about the need to make more effort all of those those of you who are already strivers will say yes i have to try even harder and when i talk about the need to back off a bit all of those who may be a little bit complacent. Yep, I knew it. Self-care, that's what I need. <laughs> so I invite you to see if you cannot do that and actually go against the grain and listen to the parts that will help balance out your default tendencies. And one of the challenges, as I said earlier, is that in our culture we have this tendency towards idealism and this kind of doing, 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 doing drive. And for many of us it's really hard not to bring that to our meditation practice. So we want to get something from it and we're looking for the right technique and the right approach and the right teacher and the right retreat and the right method and we're constantly consumed by wondering if we're doing it right and when we're going to get results. There's anxiety about getting it right and fear of getting it wrong. And so again, noticing that attitude, what's the attitude in the mind can really help uncover some of that 
what's driving this excess of striving. And again, at times we might need to strengthen the compassion wing of the practice. So in the two o'clock session, I mentioned how sometimes the practice overall can be framed in terms of the two wings to awakening of wisdom and compassion. So sometimes we need to strengthen the compassion side to help balance out that overdrive sort of mentality. So, so far I've been talking mostly about the tendency to make too much effort. But there are also times when the pendulum swings the other way and we slide into complacency. And for some of us, lack of effort might be more of our default pattern. So we hear about the need for effort or discipline and something in us consciously or unconsciously rebels and we retreat back into our comfort zones. And on one level, this is natural. Of course, we want to be comfortable. And given the choice, many of us would try to stay in our comfort zones forever. But uh, fortunately or unfortunately, this is not possible. So the Tibetan teacher Chogyam Trungpa, he complained about his students, saying that he was constantly telling them to wake up, but that they were like marsupials, constantly trying to wriggle back down into the pouch. And there's something in all of us, I think, that can... Uh, that that resonates for that we would at times love to just get back in the pouch and stay there. But the challenge, the problem with that is even if it was possible, if we stay within our comfort zones, they actually get smaller and smaller and smaller. And even here on retreat where our options are relatively limited, we can see how quickly we develop our own strategies for staying comfortable. I've noticed this in myself and with other meditators over the years. We come on retreat and it usually doesn't take too long before we've worked out our ways of creating more ease for ourselves. So perhaps in the hall we assemble a whole stack of cushions and benches and blankets and extra padding, you know, just in case. And at lunch we might find ourselves taking, you know, maybe an extra slice of cake or an extra helping of dessert for afternoon tea just in case we get hungry and perhaps we have a long siesta after lunch you know just to help with digestion we go for a long walk or a long run at the same time every day and we always wear our favorite most comfortable clothes and these things in and of themselves aren't wrong or bad but if we become attached to things being a certain way then when they change if we're dependent on them for our happiness we're in trouble so what happens if the piece of cake that i stored in the fridge with my name very clearly written on it disappears wow (laughs) if we confuse the name laura with the word dana and somebody steals our cake how do we respond Or if the lawnmower guy comes to mow the lawns right after lunch when we're trying to take our nap, how do we respond? These are somewhat humorous examples and we can laugh because perhaps we can relate to them. But we can also, uh, as meditation becomes more and more mainstream, in some circles 
meditation retreats get confused with spas and resorts and we can conflate um, kindness and compassion with self-care becoming in self-indulgence. So I've noticed that in myself, usually after a period of trying too hard, that I end up saying, well, you know, I've been working hard. Maybe I'll just skip the next sitting and take a little nap. And then instead of sitting one, walking one, sitting one, walking one, it becomes sit one, walk a half, take a nap, miss another one, take another nap. And there's this kind of slide that the less energy we have, Again, there's a reverse kind of spiral that it can take us in the opposite direction. So we need to listen out for that voice that's saying, oh, you know, give yourself a break. You don't need to try quite so hard. So notice that and notice because at times it will be true that we do need to take a nap and that actually is the most skillful thing we could do. But if we're doing that every single day, when things get a little bit uncomfortable, it's not going to help our practice progress too far. So here on retreat, when things are uncomfortable, we can have a cup of tea or take a nap or take a painkiller or grab a hot water bottle or whatever it might be to help alleviate the discomfort. But there will also be points in our life where we can't actually take on those comforts. And if we haven't learned how to deal with discomfort now in these relatively um, easy settings, when we have to face the big challenges, we're going to be in trouble. So it's a little bit like lifting weights. If we start now, we can work with 5 kilos or 10 kilos. So when we come to face into old age, to sickness, to dying, to loss of friends, with the big challenges we have more capacity to actually meet them rather than being swamped by them. So we find these strategies in terms of the physical realm of staying within our comfort zones. But we can also begin to notice how we want to stay within our mental comfort zones and cling to our views and our opinions and our perceptions and our judgments and our beliefs and our identities and underneath all of that our core sense of self that we're always trying to protect. So as I mentioned briefly the other night when I talked about uh, the precept of uh, not lying, when we start to explore the awakening factor of energy, we might start to notice all the ways that we tell ourselves that we can or can't do this, that or the other, all the beliefs that are in there about what's possible. And this practice is really an invitation to see if we can challenge some of those core beliefs, to challenge what we think is actually possible. So at the start of this talk, I invited you to notice what response there might have been to the phrase tireless energy and to see if perhaps some default conditioning came up. So seeing too if we might challenge that default conditioning and perhaps begin to shift it. 
There's a story, uh, again, from Ajahn Chah, the famous Thai meditation master, where one of his students came and complained that he was getting mixed messages about what to do. And Ajahn Chah said something like this, well, I'm guiding you how to walk down the path. If I see you falling into a ditch on the right, I'll say, go left, go left. But if you're falling into a ditch on the left, I'll say, go right, go right. So finding balance in relation to energy is a lot like this. Sometimes we do need to go left. Sometimes we need to go right. And part of the maturing of the practice is knowing when to make more effort and when to perhaps release a little. Once we do find that balance of energy, though, and the awakening factors start to come into play, they really can develop their own momentum. And at times in the practice, we can experience almost a physical feeling of sort of spiraling upwards as this natural organic momentum of the awakening factor starts to develop. And sometimes I think of this in terms of uh, the metaphor of an eagle soaring on thermal updrafts. A few years ago, I was camping with a friend in the Warren Bungles and we were standing on top of one of those quite high peaks, almost at the level of these eagles. That uh, They were wedge-tailed eagles, and they were just soaring effortlessly. And it really stuck as an image. It stayed with me because it was so powerful to see these huge birds not flapping their wings at all, but just floating almost upwards. And when we can get the chain reaction of the seven factors of awakening to start to come into play, we can experience that in our own practice. So that's probably uh, enough of an overview of these factors for tonight. We just uh, hope that we might all experience the interplay of them on increasingly refined levels so that we might experience the deepest freedom of heart and mind. Thank you for your attention.